Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 48. Now, before we dive into this, I want to point something out. There's, a, there's a, another passage of Scripture, a passage in the New Testament, that we have quoted probably more than any other as we've gone through Genesis. Um, it's a chapter in the book of Hebrews, cha- Hebrews chapter 11. It's a, it's a chapter that's often called the Hall of Faith. Uh, the author of Hebrews didn't call it that. That's just what we've called it since then. Um, because it kind of highlights all of these um, things that happen, in, mostly in the, in the Old Testament, um, that, that highlight faith, that show how faith traveled through um, through the Old Testament, through the book of Genesis, um, particularly the first chunk of, of verses in there really covers the Old Testament, covers Genesis, covers specifically the book of Genesis. And um, Jacob, who we've kind of been talking a lot about, Joseph as well, but, but also Jacob, he's certainly still alive, still in the picture. Um, he gets one verse in the whole, in the whole chapter of Hebrews 11. Um, some of these other guys, like Abraham, gets a lot uh, Moses, after him, gets a lot of verses in there. Uh, Jacob just gets one. He gets one verse, um, one highlight of like, this is the highlight of, of Jacob's faith. Uh, and it's the event that we're going to look at today in chapter 48, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If I was going to choose an event, there's a lot of things to choose from, right? The, his flight from Haran, fleeing his brother Esau, right? he's, he's running away he's in faith, going away and, and, uh, and escaping, trusting God. Um, in that, he experiences um, God reveal himself to him, uh, sees angels ascending and descending from heaven. Um, he works patiently for Laban. God carries him through working for Laban as he manipulates him and as he, as he works for uh, Rachel and Leah. Um, his, uh, his, his flight from Laban, right? He runs away from Laban back to the promised land. That also took a lot of faith. Um, and then even his, this last journey into Egypt, right? Taking his whole family into Egypt for rescue. That took faith, trusting God that we're going to a country we've never been to before, right? He had all these big time things that happened to him. Um, if I were going to rank his by faith moments, the one in this chapter today, I wouldn't put that high. But this is the one that God talks about. This is the one that God says is the thing. So we'll look at it. Hebrews 11, verse 21. says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is literally something that he did laying in bed. Right? That's not typically what we think of as like a big heroic moment. Right? None of you probably have had heroic moments that just involved you laying in bed sick. Right? Specifically here, dying in bed. Right? He's not, he, he's not, it's not a big time moment as far as we would think. Um, but yet, this is the thing that God says is the, is the most significant thing. And that, that matters more than what my opinion is. Right? Than my opinion that this doesn't seem to be that significant to me. Because we let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is a, a vital thing as we try to understand the Bible, one of the, one of the principles we have to carry into it is that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So if, if part of Scripture later on is talking about previous Scripture, that's the meaning, or that, that gives the meaning to it that's more important than almost anything else. 
right, is, the script, is what Scripture is saying about itself. And so that's what we look at here and see that this is a big-time moment. So we're going to have to drill down and see what is so significant about this moment. So we'll start out here in verses 1 through 7. And there's an adoption that's going to happen. So it says this, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brother in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Okay, so the first thing that we want to look at here is actually kind of a simple thing. Just the fact that Joseph comes to his father here, just the fact that he brings his sons with him. Um, Joseph, after his family came to Egypt, intentionally and to his own uh to the own the damage of his own reputation identified himself with his family he didn't have to do this right he didn't have to associate with his family it was a, it was a lot for him just to rescue them just to accept them remember they sold him into slavery just the forgiveness of allowing them to come and rescuing them like that's a lot right there the fact that he continues to come visit his father continue to identify himself with his family the fact that he named his, gave, gave his sons Hebrew names, these are significant factors. This is not a minor thing. Um, and, and, and in doing so, he hurt his own prospects in the Egyptian court. Right? Because his association with his family changed the way he was seen in the Egyptian court. In the Egyptian court, he could have almost passed as Egyptian. There's not that big of a, 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 necessarily a racial difference, appearance difference that he would have had there. And, and he dressed in Egyptian garb, shaved himself like an Egyptian, right? He, he would have been accepted as an Egyptian. He was number two behind, behind Pharaoh. Um, that would give him major clout in that culture. Um, he would have almost been seen as Egyptian. They could have almost forgotten that he was a foreigner, but then his big old Hebrew family comes and he continues associating with them and they have their customs and they're over here in Goshen doing their shepherd thing. And it's like, oh, where's Joseph today? Oh, he's over in Goshen with his family. Now it's all of a sudden reminding everybody that he's Hebrew, right? And on, not, not to mention the fact that he already wasn't worshiping the Egyptian gods. He was still worshiping his foreign god. So there were all kinds of, that, that this continued to mark him as not of Egypt as not of that culture he that he was maintaining this association and it should cut us us to think right if Joseph was willing to give that up he was willing up to give up his prospects and the prospects of his offspring to associate himself with his family to associate himself really with the God of his fathers what are we willing to give up 
for Jesus? Right? How, what are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up family? Right? If they are not walking with him and if they reject us because we walk with him? That's not a, usually a big question in America, but for a lot of people and a lot of cultures, uh, that is a choice that they make. They choose to, to, to give up family because uh, in, in, if you're converting from Islam to Christianity, your family will disown you. And that's true of many other religions as well. Friends, right? Work opportunities, that's what's happening here. Work opportunities. Sometimes uh, opportunities arise that would cause us to violate our, our faith, right? Violate who we are as Christians. And, and is that something that we're willing to give up? Our own reputation, right? Some people see us as, as different and as weird or uh, odd or, or not right, not correct if we follow Jesus. What are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up those things? It's something to consider and that we challenge to because Jesus requires that willingness. When Jesus comes to it, when, when Jesus offers us salvation, he's really offering us fully to follow him. That is part of that, that surrender is to follow him. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's saying if in comparison to how much you love Jesus, you don't, it's not as if you hated everything else, that you were willing to give it up for the sake of Jesus, it's not enough. Turn our lives over to him entirely because of what he's done for us. And so we see Jacob recall the promises that God had made to him, right? Jacob, as he's talking with Joseph, he's recalling these promises. Um, he recalls how God appeared to him tw- in, in Luz or Bethel. Um, he did that twice, two times he appeared to him. Once when he was fleeing from Esau, and then once when he was returning from Haran. Both times God appeared to him there. Um, that's chapter, chapters 28 and 35, if you want to look that up. Um, Jacob recalls that he's heir to the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and that his sons would be heirs after him. And then he proposes this adoption, right? He proposes um, essentially, I mean, he's saying that it's just going to happen, but to some extent Joseph needed to consent. But he proposes this thing of saying, Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Um. Which, right there, those are his actual firstborn sons. And so when he says Ephraim and Manasseh will be like Reuben and Simeon, he's saying they're essentially going to replace um, and and take the birthright. Because the birthright's largely up for debate at this point. It's not clear who who Jacob's successor will be, who who the birthright will go to. Um, you know, remember Reuben, the eldest, he'd committed incest with his stepmother, violated... um, violated that uh, relationship there and the trust that, that Jacob had in him. Simeon and Levi uh, were mass murderers. They committed genocide against the Shechemites. Um, and then Judah infamously had conceived a child with his daughter-in-law. Right? So all four of them, it's, it's not great. The next two in line, Dan and Naphtali, they're, um, they're in fact uh, Bilhaz, uh, which is Rachel's maid, which is the, this, the, the, uh, the wife that that um, Reuben had committed incest with, right? So they're not good candidates. They were also already even uh, sons of the maidservant. And then, and then next are Gad and Asher. 
and they're uh, the sons of the other maidservant, of Leah's maidservant. So could they really be, as kind of sons of of the lesser wives, could they be the the heir? Um, And and then, you know, and then at that point, now you're at like, you're at child nine, ten, you know, that's so far down the line at this point, it's just like, who, who does this birthright actually go to? And so Jacob feels like he has the, the right to, to make a change. And he's going to do that. Uh, First Chronicles 5 says, says as much. Uh, it, it's the beginning of a, uh, of a uh, genealogy in First Chronicles chapter 5. And it tells us, it gives us some explanation. It says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from them, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So he's proposing this like kind of usurping of the birthright given and giving it to Joseph's sons. They'd become the first and second sons uh, for inheritance purposes. Remember, he, Jacob's on his deathbed, so this adoption is a way more illegal kind of a thing and in terms of inheritance than it is like Jacob's not intending to raise them. He's not actually saying, like, I'm going to take them away from you and I'll raise them. Um, it's way more for the inheritance and the, the kind of legal standing. We might think about like how did the other brothers feel about this? right? How did the other brothers feel about that? Would, how would they react but we have to take into account the context and, and where they're at. We might be able to, we, they don't ever really say. It never really says how they react to this. But we can kind of surmise what they might be feeling um, if we recall that their previous jealousy uh, over, over Jacob's favorite son is what had ended up with Joseph being sold into slavery in the first place. Um, that God had used that transgression for good, saved their whole family from famine. Um, the top prospects for birthright had disqualified themselves uh, on multiple counts. And so could they really be upset? Like, probably not. They couldn't really rightfully protest this. Again, it's largely up for debate, and they can't really, they don't have much of a case to, to have any, any argument over this. So what Jacob's proposing is that Joseph's sons would be um, incorporated into the tribe. So, so Joseph's sons would become the heirs, Ephraim and Manasseh, and that Joseph's other sons would become as though they were their sons. Does that make sense? So he's saying that in terms of then, when you think about lineage, those sons would, would be called after the names of their brothers. So it would be as though they were the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh, even though they're, they're not, they're Joseph's sons. But this is why you don't ever hear about, if you read you continue to read the Old Testament, later on you hear about all these other tribes. Right? You hear about the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Levi. You don't ever really hear about the tribe of Joseph. Very occasionally it's written that way, but it almost never is. But you will read things like the half-tribe Manasseh. And that's, this is why. This situation is exactly why that's the case. And then Jacob does this other thing where he starts to reminisce about Rachel's death. Right, this kind of odd, uh, odd turn that he makes there, where he starts talking about, um, you know, verse seven. He says, "As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way." And he starts talking about that. You go, why all of a sudden is he bringing up Rachel's death? Well, again, that's Joseph's mother, um, and he's kind of 
he's kind of lamenting the fact that she didn't have more children. He's kind of lamenting the fact that that, that he didn't get more from Rachel, more children from her, uh, because her life was cut short. And so he's kind of explaining why he wants to essentially double the, the birthright that would go to Joseph uh, by, by adopting his sons. Okay, let's continue and we'll see how this actually gets implemented. Uh, chapter f- uh, 48, verses 8 through 16, we'll see his actual blessing of the sons here. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who's, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the, hand of, on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been the shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Okay, so he starts now the official adoption process. Before he's kind of proposing and saying, here's what I'm intending to do. Now this is the official adoption process. And, and many scholars think that the actual verses 8 through 13 are a formal adoption process. That when he says, who are these, he's not, real, he's not really asking. Right? He's not going like, oh, I know I asked you to bring your sons with you, but who are these? Right? That's not really what he's saying. It's a formal kind of thing, the way that um, at a wedding, the minister will ask, uh, who gives this woman to be wed? Again, he's not asking. He's guys standing right there. You've all been to a wedding before. It's not a real question, but it's part of this formal ceremony. Same thing here. And so Joseph's response of, these are the sons born to me in, in Israel, like that's again his formal response. And then even the bringing them near, embracing them, kissing them, is a formal part of the adoption process. And then finally, Joseph actually removes them from his knee and, get, and gives them to, to Jacob and bows to the earth. Again, this is all formally part of the adoption process. These are all formal, um, symbolic gestures, right? Literally taking them off of his knee, giving them to Jacob. And so we see this kind of all walk through, the, that, and, and Jacob notes how remarkable this is, right? He, he's the one that proposes, but even in the moment, he's amazed at how God has brought him to this place, about how mightily God worked to bring him to this exact moment where not only is he seeing Joseph, which he never hoped. We got to remember, he thought Joseph was dead for 20 years. Only for the last 17 years has he been in his life. And he now is actually seeing Joseph, and now he's having this chance to do this formal adoption thing with his sons. It's amazing to him. It's amazing to him. He says, I never hoped to see you, and yet here I see your offspring. 
So then we see Joseph's, Jacob's blessing. Now he's going to actually declare a blessing over the boys as part of a formal process. And remember, his eyes, he can't see well, right? He's got, he's, his eyes are dim. This might bring to mind the, the actual blessing of Jacob uh, by Isaac, right? His father, he couldn't see well. That's what allowed Jacob to pull this trick, remember, where he pretended to be Esau, put the, the goat skin on and, and pretended to be Esau, and that's how he got the blessing. Now, the same thing's happening with Jacob. He, he can't see well, so Joseph is trying to be a very helpful son. He's got them in the right, correct sides of the bed, and brings them over to the right side so that Jacob can just lay his hands. And, and by tradition, he should lay his right hand on the head of the older, his left hand on the head of the younger. So Joseph sets it up perfectly. Sets it up for him, brings him over there, and then he declares this blessing, right? He calls on the God of his fathers. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of my fathers who led Abraham and Isaac and has now led me through my life. Where he specifically calls God his shepherd. He says, the God who has shepherded me for my whole life long. The God who has shepherded me. And this actually, maybe surprisingly, that's a, 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 a metaphor that we're familiar with, right? God as our shepherd. It's even most famously uh, quoted in, in Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're familiar with this motif of, of God as shepherd, but this is actually the first place that anybody calls God their shepherd. Jacob's the first one to say, God who has shepherded me all of my life. This is the first place, and then it gets continued throughout. And remember, for Jacob, that's not a, a, it's not like a purely metaphorical thing for him. It's not like when we call God our shepherd, most of us, I, I assume, haven't spent much time shepherding. Actually, like being out in a field with sheep, leading them around. Anybody? Oh, yeah. One. Okay, great. Eva, go talk to Eva about it. She'll let you know. I did not expect that. That's cool. Um, but most of us don't, have, don't know what that, we, we can kind of theoretically go, okay, yeah, the shepherd protects the sheep, he leads the sheep to, to food and water, and he cares for the sheep, and, uh, and we've even heard things of like sheep being able to respond to shepherd's voice. For Jacob, that's like real, like he, he was a shepherd, he raised shepherds, he's the shepherd, like his father was a shepherd, his grandfather was a shepherd, he knows shepherding. So when he says God's my shepherd, he's like he knows exactly what he means by that. <clears throat> and so he uses this, and, and he says, um, "God, the God is my shepherd." Right? He says, "The God, the God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, who led them. The God who shepherded me all the days of my life." And then he says, "The angel who redeem, who has redeemed me from all evil." And that's a remarkable sentence right there. That's a remarkable phrase. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Because when he says the angel, we read a lot into the word angel. 
right? We, we, when we think angel, we think like flying wings and, and white and, and like, you know, we have a very specific image of what we think when we read angel. But in the Old Testament, uh, there's many times here where it's, it's used as the angel of the Lord appeared to fill in the blank. We've, we've seen that many times here. An angel is, it, for us, we're just, it's a transliteration of, of a Greek word, actually, euangelion, um, which, which just means messenger. So he's saying, the messenger who has redeemed me from all evil, um, this, this, this person that I've encountered that has redeemed me from all evil. He actually even wrestled with this angel. Specifically in, in uh, and, and, but we can see that this angel is God. Because he actually identifies himself as such in one of his encounters um, with him in Genesis 31. If you want to look at it in context, but he says, the angel of God said to me in a dream, and then there's a bunch of other stuff. It's actually about sheep and goats. We go back to that. Um, but, but then he says, I am the God of Bethel. This angel says to to, to Jacob that he is God. So this angel that has redeemed him from all evil is God. And, and again, most biblical scholars think that these encounters that he has with the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a theophany. It's actually Jesus before he was born on the earth. He's still part of the Trinity and here has appeared to Jacob on multiple occasions, has appeared to his fathers on multiple occasions. He has been active throughout the Old Testament. He's actually stepping in. And here, he says he's the angel who's redeemed me from all evil. So again, I don't know what Jacob really meant by that or thought about that, but we can see from our side that he's talking about Jesus, that Jesus is the one who redeems him from all evil. That's the gospel. Like This is the gospel in Genesis. He's saying, this is the God who's redeemed me, who has saved me. This angel of the Lord, this Jesus, even though he didn't know that name, that's what he's saying. He sees it clearly that this is the God who saved him, even from himself, even from the evil that's within him. So it's important that we reflect and go, okay, this is what Jacob says. This is what Jacob says about his relationship with God. This is what God has been to him. Who has God been to you? Who has God been in your life? How would you sum up? That how if you were going to write that yourself, how would you sum it up? What would you say about well, who God has been to you? That's something to think about. And then Jacob asked God. He says, "So he names specifically. This is who I'm talking to. This God is the God that I'm talking to." And then he says, "Bless the boys, right? That he, and that he allows the boys to bear the birthright. He says, let them carry my name. He gives them that birthright." And then he asks that they grow into a multitude on the earth. But there's something else that, that we missed there is that J- even though Joseph led him, led the boys to the exact right side of the bed so it would just be easy for him to go like this, Jacob, in his old age, right, in his infirmity, he's on his deathbed, takes the time to cross his hands. Like, think about that, how uncomfortable that would be especially if you had like arthritis and everything like he probably did at this age, right? It's, he's like, and, and how, I mean, the boys would have to be pretty close. You could try it. You should try it. Really, you should try it. If you don't feel uncomfortable doing it next to people, 
Do it later. Just think about when you're in bed tonight, try to go, okay, what if I need to put my hands on different people? It's an uncomfortable position to be in. So it's like fully intentional. He's very intentionally doing this. Um, and he's choosing to place the younger over the older. So we'll see how Joseph responds to this here next. So let's, let's continue reading verses 17 through 22. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Okay, so Joseph's not happy with this crossed hand situation. And he tries to correct it. He probably, you know, really gently thinks that it's his aging father's poor eyesight. He probably didn't realize that he did it right to begin with. So he tries to help him out. And Jacob says, no, this is intentional. But it's not as though, like, at this point, they're not playing by strict rules, right? At this point, are there any rules for succession? You're, right now, like, he's blessing the sons of his 11th born son as firstborn and secondborn. Is there really a difference of who's one and two at this point? Like, can he really make any claim for like, hey, well, wait, father, the firstborn should really be first. At this point, it's almost a family tradition to not have this be the case, right? You had, you had all the way back to the beginning, Abel's offering accepted over Cain's, even though Cain was the firstborn. You had Isaac blessed over Ishmael. You have Jacob over Esau. Like Jacob's like, you know, in this moment probably thinking, I went through a whole trouble to trick my father into blessing me. You think that I care who's first and second? Right? He's not making that distinction. <clears throat> even, even Judah's sons, if we went back to that, Judah's sons, Perez and um, Zerah, right, they, they did a switcheroo in the womb. Remember the hand comes out and the nurse ties the red uh, thread around and then the hand goes back in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the other one comes out first. Right? They did all the switcheroo even in the womb. It's almost a family tradition. Um, Jacob, and so Jacob says, no, they'll both be great, but Ephraim is going to be over Manasseh. I'm going to put him before. Um, and, and the blessing had been given also, and, and it can't be undone, right? Jacob had already proved that previously when, when he was blessed by Isaac. They couldn't redo it. And so, again, it's almost like God's making a point that, that these human traditions, birth order, uh, they don't matter to him, right? These human qualifications, these human determinations don't matter to God and what God's doing. That God will do what he wants to do. That he doesn't respect human tradition. That birth order doesn't equal destiny. 
um, that, that God doesn't evaluate according to human metrics. Right? That God doesn't use our, our disqualifications don't matter to Him. That He doesn't disqualify based on what we consider disqualification. That He sees things His, his way. And that His way is above our way. Right? 1 Corinthians tells us that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame that which is wise, the weak things to shame that which are strong. Or that he, he, th- he sees things very differently than we do. And so we have to consider, do we evaluate people the way that God does, or do we evaluate people by worldly values? Right? Do we use God's values when we evaluate people, or do we use worldly values? It's very difficult to avoid not using worldly values, right? worldly qualifications. Because they're usually the most obvious, right? Strength, intelligence, appearance, skills, right? These are things that we kind of, that's just natural for us to go, well, this is obviously the person that should be chosen. Or this is the person that we should choose. This is the person we should go with. I tried to come up with an illustration of like when I've misjudged people, but there's just like too many like, I couldn't even, like, pinpoint, I'm like, I was th- trying to think it through, I'm like, I know that I've done this, and so maybe I could come up with an example, but I'm like, I, it's just, like, too common. It's like t- trying to come up with the time I brushed my teeth or something. It's like, it just happens all the time. It's happened so much in our lives that we misjudge people because we don't see them the way that God sees them. That he sees them differently than we do. That he sees them truer than we do. And that he can use people that we don't think he can use. And then Jacob gets into the future, right? Then he starts talking about the future. Um, He tells Joseph that he's confident that they will return to the promised land, that God's not done with those promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he says, I'm confident that you're going to return. And he's so confident that he grants Shechem to Joseph, right? He says, when he says, I'll give you one mountain slope, Instead of your brothers, I'm going to give it to you, this one mountain slope. That's Shechem. Shechem actually means mountain slope. And so he's saying, I'm going to give that, I'm giving that land to you instead. And that, that took real confidence. That took real faith to make that declaration. Because there's nobody there to, there's nobody in the promised land still to like maintain that claim. Right? Jacob didn't leave like a couple guys there to guard it this little mountainside that he owns. Right? He, didn't, he didn't leave anybody there to maintain that. Um, and there's likely no markers indicating the claim, and the governments are shifting all the time as different tribes war with each other. So to be like, I'm gonna, I give that to you. It's like if, if I was like, um, uh, t- said to my son, like, I, I got a piece of land on, on Mars for you, son. You can have it. It's, I, I, I ordered it, and, and so it's all set. Right? That's... Like, we have no means of even getting there. Like, what are the odds we're going to come back there? That's kind of what it was like here. And so Jacob has that confidence of saying, I'm sure that you'll go back and I'm going to give this, this land to you, this little bit of land that I own. Like, that and the, and the graves, the grave in which Abraham and Isaac and Sarah are buried, those are really the only parts of the promised land that they can in any way say that they own. And even then, like, how are they going to how are they going to actually institute that claim and, and, and claim it as their own? They can't just come back and say, oh, excuse me, this belongs to us. 
right? They're, they'll say, well, we'll fight you for it. So to have that confidence of saying, that land is yours, shows his confidence in what God is going to do. So when we look at why is this Jacob's Hall of Faith moment, why is this the moment that, that is recorded as like, look at what Jacob did by faith. We have to assume, first of all, that he's responding to something that God asked him to do, that God told him this thing about Ephraim and Manasseh. And even that, even that order of saying Ephraim and Manasseh, right? I even titled this, this message Ephraim and Manasseh. Even that, writing it that way, show, is indicative of this, right? Because when you have two sons, usually you call the older one and then the younger one. It'd be weird even for me if someone was like, oh, Eric and Christopher. Never goes that way. No one ever says it that way. Eric's my brother. He's my younger brother. People always say, Christopher and Eric. And, and it would just sound weird. I wouldn't be bothered by it, but it would just sound weird. Right? And that's what's happening here is even here, when they switch the order of the names, they're showing that that, that switch has happened. Ephraim and Manasseh. So it's this culminating moment in the life of Jacob of, of showing that he's responding to what God asked him to do, that he's recalling how God has brought him this far, and he's projecting into the future, believing in the future of his family, even though they're in this foreign land, they're in the midst of, of this foreign land, fleeing a famine, and, and have no real prospects for return. They don't have any plans in the immediate future to return. Jacob assumes he's going to die here. He's asked them to carry his bones out with him, to go bury him in the promised land. But he knows they've got to stay here for a while. And in reality, we know they stay there for 400 years and end up becoming slaves. That trusting that God is going to actually bring them back, that takes a lot of faith. And so him making this, even making these promises, declaring these blessings, choosing to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh and doing all those things shows his faith in what God is going to do as he lay dying. The fact that he's actually in bed dying, making these declarations, that shows his faith because he believes in a future that he's going to have no control over because he's not even going to be there in the flesh. All right, if we look at how should we then live, what can we take away from this passage? What are some applications that we can have for our lives? How might we be affected by this? I've got three, three possibilities for you here. And again, there might be things that come up in your, in your own heart that the Holy Spirit um, prompts that that's uh, for you. But here are some possibilities. Search your heart for anything you're putting before Jesus. We looked at how Joseph uh, chose to put God and his family ahead of uh, his place in the Egyptian court. What are you putting ahead of God? What are you putting ahead of your allegiance to Jesus? Because nothing should be higher than your allegiance to Jesus. Number two, here's a challenge and a real practical thing that you could actually do. Take, Joseph's, uh, J- take Jacob's blessing of his sons, right, where he starts there in um, in verse 15, verse 15 and 16, right, when he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, and it ends with uh, midst of the earth there at the end of 16. Take that, write it out, and then, and then think about how would you rephrase it? How would you rephrase it as a blessing on your own children? How would you re- write, what would you write about the God who 
what has he been to you? What has he done for you? Who has he been to you? How, how is, what is his legacy in your life? How has he redeemed you? And then what would you want for your children or for your nephews or the next generation or whoever it might be? What would the next, what, who would you write a blessing for? And what would it sound like? And then lastly, consider who you may be underestimating. Right, we looked at how God sees people differently, how God evaluates differently. God doesn't respect these institutions that we have, these traditions that we may have. <coughs> that, that we might need to rethink and consider who might we be underestimating? Who might we see differently? Who can we ask God to help us see the way that he sees them? Sometimes it's just as, as simple as saying, who do I think is dis, has been disqualified, has no hope of salvation? Because there are people that we write off, right? There are people that we, just in practicality, not out of malice or anything like that, we just go, they're never going to believe. So-and-so is never going to believe in Jesus. And if, if I even say that sentence, if I say fill in the blank, blank will never believe in Jesus. Somebody popped into your mind. Maybe change the way you see that person. Maybe change the, the hope you might have for them. Change the way you pray for them. That we, can change, that we can believe that God is bigger than that, that he is mightier than that, that he can move in ways that we can never expect or understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this instance where uh, Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. We see the faith that he had in projecting into the future of, of praying for the future, of praying for... Uh, and, and, and blessing and, and putting forward something that he would have no impact on, that he would not be there for, yet he speaks into the future of his family. He sees a, a future for them that you are in control of. And I pray that we would see that as well. We would see beyond our own lifetime, or even the, our children's lifetime, but we would see beyond in our future of, of our own families or in the generations that we're impacting and, and the people that are younger than us that, that we're speaking into our, investing our lives in, that we would see a future for them, that we would see a way that you can move that we would never uh, expect. We pray that you would alter the way we see people, that we would see them with your eyes, that we would, when we have these worldly judgments that are, are, in, are sometimes difficult to stop ourselves from even initially, but that when we have them, we would stop and say, God, change, change the way I see them. God, we pray for you to move in our lives, for you to move in our families, for you to move in our community, for you to move in our country. We know that you are mighty. We know that you are able. That you are the one who is capable of changing things. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Would you all stand?